Welcome back to Crime Capsule and our interview with Tom Hughes, author of Hanging the Peachtree Bandit, the true tale of Atlanta's infamous Frank Dupree. Last week, Tom told us about Frank's no good, horrible, very bad day back in December 1921, in which a botched robbery turned into a murder and a flight from justice across four states. But that was just the beginning. Today, we hear the remarkable story of how Frank managed to elude, not capture, but execution, time and time again, until the day his luck ran out. Tom, thank you so much for joining us again. We're so glad to have you back. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So where we last left off, Frank was in custody. He had been apprehended in Detroit. He had been extradited back to Atlanta. A massive crowd had received him at uh, the station, the train station in Atlanta. He is taken to Fulton County Jail, the old Fulton County Jail, the tower, and his family, his father is there, Betty is there. You said she is wailing at the sight of him. What is Frank's reaction? What is his demeanor during this time? Frank is talking altogether too much. He talked to the detectives in Detroit when the Atlanta police got up there. He talked to them when he got back to Atlanta. He talked to the reporters. There was a very um, casual relationship with the press. They would come in and sit by Frank's jail cell and give him cigarettes. He was a chain smoker of cigarettes. And they would give him packs and packs of cigarettes, and he would keep talking. He, he talked frequently about his uh, what drove him to do the crime. He said Betty had nothing to do with it, but she was a glamorous showgirl. And that's he sort of built up this legend of Betty Andrews. Now that he's in jail, Betty Andrews has become a celebrity in Atlanta. Betty Mania was underway. There's a wonderful photograph of Betty Andrews. If if any of your listeners remember Betty Boop from the cartoons of the 50s, she had a very Betty Boopish uh, air about her. And she is, in the public's eye, this wicked temptress who had deluded this poor young boy into buying a ring. And then she's basically selling him down the river now. And there, the, the preacher, one of the preachers in town is a, a Reverend Ham, and he is a preacher at the, the tabernacle, the Baptist tabernacle. But at the time, the Reverend Ham was the uh, one of the leading preachers of Atlanta, and he gave a sermon. I have to go and say that he was arrested, brought back to Atlanta like on a Thursday, and his trial began on a Tuesday. That was how quickly uh, the Solicitor General, the District Attorney, as they would be called in most places, a gentleman by the name of John Boykin, a very formidable uh, individual. And Boykin said, "We're you know, it's the death penalty. We're going for the death penalty, and we're going to try him on Tuesday. And so a Sunday intervened, and the Reverend Ham uh, gives a sermon saying this country is going to destruction morally and socially unless something is done to produce a rebirth of conscience 
in the matter of punishment of the law-defying murderous desperados who have no regard for the sacredness of human life. He talks about how um, no one is, you know, Betty Andrews is a celebrity. What about Mrs. Walker, the widow of the murdered police uh, Pinkerton agent? You know, but, and then he says that Betty Andrews, his lynx-eyed paramour and a flapper, and and it goes on, it goes, because a criminal and a flapper determined upon a plan of robbery at any cost, and they need to find people on that jury who will put Frank at the end of a noose. So there is this this buildup of frenzy for the trial. Explain to us the strategy for the defense. Well, to this day, I don't know why they, they did not ask for a change in venue because... You know, obviously the city of Atlanta was up in outrage over this crime. You know, move it somewhere. They could have moved it to uh, Macon or Savannah or something like that, but they didn't. They thought of an insanity plea, and they had certain concerns about his mental understandable because he, he just didn't seem to be at all concerned about the situation he was in but they didn't go for insanity. They relied on a rather uh, peculiar argument primarily in that Frank did not know that the man with whom he was grappling was a police officer. He wasn't a police officer. He was a private uh, security guard. And Frank didn't know who this guy was who jumped him. And so he had just as much right to defend himself as as anyone else. And so they they wanted the crime treated as voluntary manslaughter and not murder, which was uh, the state's contention, the county's contention. Which would have resulted in, even if he was still convicted of voluntary manslaughter, it was it would have not have been the death penalty. Just it would, would have not been have been sentence, the death, right? yes, right. Or maybe even a lesser sentence than life. So you have... This amazing quote by uh, Boykin's assistant, uh, his deputy, a guy named Ed Stevens, and it's on uh, page 66 of your book. You say that Stevens argued that Dupree had taken, quote, the crimson lifeblood from another man to buy silken baubles for a woman who herself is crimson with crime. Pretty good, huh? (laughs) <laughs> that's pretty good. That I mean, I uh, that's pretty darn good. I wish I'd come up with that phrasing myself. I have to confess. Ed Stevens was the uh, was the orator. Boykin was the organizer. He was the man who ran the department, and he could give a good uh, speech as well. But uh, Stevens was the real orator in the uh, in the office, and he handled a lot of these closing arguments. So what is their strategy? What is the prosecution's strategy here? Basically, it's murder. It's plain plain and simple murder. Uh, the motive was to get uh, this ring for Betty Andrews, and he was willing to kill a man for that purpose. And then he ran and killed other people. Now, the defense said whatever he did once he left Kaiser's was not the subject for this trial. The only thing Frank should be tried for was the shooting of 
Irby Walker at Kaiser's. The other events were unrelated and shouldn't be put before. Obviously, the jury knew about them, but they shouldn't be raised in this particular trial. And it was a simple cut-and-dried case of murder, worthy of what Boykin said, some good old-fashioned rope. Uh, you know, it's often said that the courtroom is uh, no less theatrical than the stage itself, and it sounds like you had quite the the cast assembled there as well. It really struck me as I was reading, Tom, that you know your witnesses, your list of witnesses that you record for this particular trial, I mean, the prosecution draws them in from across Atlanta, as public as this crime was, I mean, you have witnesses with firsthand involvement. You've got the store employee at Kaiser's who handed him the ring. You've got the pawnbrokers. You've got Abelson. You've got the driver, Cliff Buckley. I mean, you've you've basically got every single human who was involved in this event present in this courtroom. They And they told the story as they witnessed it. Uh, Silverman... Uh, was probably the most uncomfortable on the stand. His English was not very good, and the defense attorneys uh, um, badgered him about, you had to know that some kid coming in here, John Doe, with a 2500 dime. But as the judge said, look, Mr. Silverman is not on trial here. you know, And he was cooperating with the police and was giving evidence. So, I mean, he he obviously had a you know, a dubious role in the whole situation, but he wasn't the man on trial. And so, and they called one of the strategies of the, of the defense and they did the best they could. I think they, uh, I talked uh, with the granddaughter of Henry Allen, who was Frank's uh, defense attorney. And she, he was, he was good at his craft. It was not his first uh, rodeo by any means. And they made the decision not to call any witnesses for Frank, because if you call witnesses, then, you know, they wouldn't be able to call any character witnesses for Frank, because if they if they made character an issue, then the state could have brought up other character, you know, discharacter witnesses, you know disputing it so they and also by not care, calling witnesses they got to have the last word before the jury the only thing F- frank could do was this this unsworn statement georgia was one of the few remaining states that allowed an accused person um to make an unsworn statement the attorney could not question him, could not assist him in any way, say something like, well, Frank, make sure you point out this. That all had to be done beforehand. The accused was allowed to make a statement, and Frank was given his opportunity and just bungled it atrociously again. Yeah, this is, it's such an, it's such an unusual genre of legal proceeding or sort of form of testimony, if you want to call that. I mean, it's like King Lear's last monologue before he goes off stage, you know, in, in Act 5. Uh, but but you, you say that, he, I mean, you write that he basically bungled it, just absolutely botched what, there was one thing that he needed to say, 
and he never said it. And if he had said it, he might he might have lived another fifty years. He might have. Uh, he he basically just described his his childhood. Uh, he talked about how he his first act of crime was robbing his uncle. He talked about the previous uh, ring theft, and then he described the whole events of the day of December fifteenth and how he went to Chattanooga and he railed a little bit about the pawnbroker who wouldn't give him a lot of money. And oh, he also made a special point of mentioning how Jack Worth told him it really took guts what he did at Kaiser's. But he never once said he was sorry. And he spoke for 15 minutes. He could have spoken for two hours. There was no time limit, reasonable time limit. And he spoke for just 15 minutes. And then he he basically closed where we closed, where he was arrested in Detroit. So, and that was like the end of it. And then he stood there and Mr. Allen eventually said, is there any more, Frank? And Frank said, no, I'm done. And he sat down. But he had never, if he had said simply at some point, you know, I really am sorry for what I did to Mr. Walker. You know, the, the you know, people might've, given him, there might have been some reason for the jury to consider mercy. But there was, and and he also, the newspapers, he had a, a squint, a bad squint, and it made him appear like he was smiling. He'd be sort of crinkling his eyes and make a, and, and, and many times during the courtroom scenes, they would say that he was Smiling. One person described him as having a a, a, a air of smug self satisfaction, an indefinable air of smug self satisfaction during the trial. And so here you have this guy who appears to be smiling while Mrs. Irby Walker is on the stand talking about and holding the bloody jacket he had been wearing on the day of his death. And then he gets his opportunity to talk to the jury. And basically just tells them what they already knew, how we got to this point in his arrest, never once expressing any regret. And during his jailhouse interviews, he was telling reporters that, you know, you know, I learned my lesson, you know, no whiskey, no, no pool halls. I, I can talk to other young men. I would be a, a, a role model. That was probably a term not used in 1922, but you know if he had said something like that in his statement and i'm sh- i sure i'm sure i'm not positive but i hope that henry allen and the his assistant uh, counsel told him that you needed to say something frank you know to appeal for some mercy throw yourself on the mercy of the court but he didn't do it and that that opportunity was available to him that day and that day alone Closing arguments take place in uh, February 1922, but the uh, deliberations among the jury did not take very long, did they? Yeah, and they came out and the foreman was asked, how do you find him? And they said, we find Frank Dupree guilty. Now, the jury had the power in the state of Georgia to say, we find the defendant guilty but we recommend mercy. And they just said, we find the defendant guilty. No recommendation for mercy. The judge, therefore, uh, sentenced Frank 
to death, hang by the neck until dead on the 10th of March, which was roughly a month and a half away. Now, it's funny because the the chapter of the trial is over and his execution date is set for the next month in March, but that doesn't happen because there's actually kind of a new chapter in the saga that gets get started here. I mean, what you have is this citywide campaign in which we'd already discussed how sort of people are taking sides in this case and, oh, he's just a kid and, you know, how how could you kill, you know, this kid, right? Um, the city gets involved. The preachers start to weigh in again. And, and even though legally the, sor- the story is supposed to be ending, it's anything but ending in the springtime of 1922, isn't it? It has to be said that the reason why there became a statewide and certainly uh, in the greater Atlanta area, a debate about the fate of Frank Dupree was that he was a white youth. There was no opposition to any uh, African-Americans being executed for crimes. Uh, there were a few, but basically, you know, a white, one of the leading preachers of uh, this movement to spare Frank from the gallows was a Reverend Mr. Ridley, who was the clud, which is the uh, term of for the chaplain of the Ku Klux Klan, the statewide organization of the Klan. And he went to the governor, wrote to the governor, urging that, uh, you know, we don't hang white boys in Georgia. And so there was that kernel, which really drove the 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 whole idea that what are we we were hanging a white boy, and there were others who were more generally concerned with Frank being uh, not only a, a white youth but being a a guy who had been just totally incapable of defending himself against people like Jack Worth and Betty Andrews, who were older and more mature and led him to commit this crime, that he he hadn't done this on his own. It had been some horrible mistake on his part that he should not hang for, because he was not solely responsible. And then the issue that he was not mentally competent, and he was tested, and as I, I said last week, uh, he was graded a high-grade moron. And they said that, the, you know, we don't execute mental pe- uh, mentally ill people either. There's this fascinating sub-thread that runs through this whole sequence in your book, which is, you know, we forget nowadays, this was the height of Jim Crow, right? And the sort of post-Confederate monuments are going up all over the Southern landscape, sort of the 1910s and 20s are when white folks are really reestablishing their position as sort of dominant in society. They control the legislatures and so forth. And as you write, I mean, there had been numerous African-American men who had already hung from the gallows in the years prior to Frank's murder for far lesser Mm -hmm. crimes, for far, far Mm -hmm. lesser crimes. At the time of the very same time as Frank's murder of the Pinkerton man in December of the previous year, 1921, a young man in Augusta, a black man, teenager, I believe, uh, insulted 
a white girl, and he was arrested, tried, and hung in like a matter of a week, and the story hardly made the papers. So there wasn't a, a giant concern with capital punishment in Georgia until the issue arose of we're going to hang this 19-year-old uh, white youth, Frank Dupree. But it did, nonetheless, start what is sort of the uh, beginnings of the uh, review of the capital punishment system in Georgia. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. And yet, despite that racial wrinkle, that sort of element in which his privilege in society as a white man of the day, the legal defense fails time and time again to get him off the hook. He has a stay of execution hearing in March that doesn't go well for him, and things continue on towards the gallows. The appeal goes all the way to the Georgia State Supreme Court, and they are deadlocked, which means that no change, no reversal, no no clemency there. Uh, in the summertime, there is yet another hearing before the governor of Georgia saying, clemency, clemency, and still his sentence is upheld time and time again. And so it, it appears as though over that kind of long spring and summer that really nothing is going to save him from his fate, doesn't it? No. Every step along the way, the bonehead letter reappears. When it was before the state Supreme Court, they, the argument was made that the judge, when he instructed the jury at the original trial, that he reminded them that they have the uh, untrammeled right to offer mercy, recommend mercy. But he sort of discussed other matters, and it seemed to imply to the jury that, you know, you really ought to consider the seriousness of the crime, the wanton murder, and yeah, but that's not, the jury doesn't have to consider anything. They could say, we recommend mercy because we like his tie. I mean, there was no, the, that was the argument, that 
But when it went to the state Supreme Court, the justice who wrote the uh, deciding opinion said he never saw a case less deserving of mercy, and he cited specifically the insolent bravado of Frank's bonehead letter to the police as as in, indicative that this was a merciless uh, killer. And therefore, Frank was resentenced to hang as a result of the state Supreme Court uh, ruling. And then his only uh, appeals then were left to the prison board and eventually to Governor Tom Hardwood. Yeah, and, and that scene is so compelling because when you actually have the uh, the attorneys and Frank and the sort of the whole circus get back together again in front of the governor. I mean, it's it's like another trial taking place all over, and they call witnesses, and there are these lengthy statements and so forth. And now Tom Hardwick is an interesting case because you know, he's having to make his own political calculations uh, in this matter. He's running for re-election. Things aren't going well for him. Uh, he is no stranger to Klan politics, and he knows that he is going to be alienating different sets of voters depending on which way he rules in this. Um, but you know, his argument in the end is that Frank only showed remorse after he got caught, and someone needs to be made an example. That's some hardball politics right there. Well, Hardwick is uh, not a very admirable figure. He got his start in the in the legislature. He was a prosecuting attorney at a very young age and then got in the legislature where he uh, was known for uh, what was called the Negro Disenfranchisement Bill, which he got passed and it sharply reduced uh, the number of uh, black Georgians who could vote. And then he, he got into the United States Senate and then was governor of Georgia. And at the time, Georgia was under a lot of national pressure because of the number of lynchings that were going on in the state. And there were some in Washington who wanted to send troops into Georgia to stop it. And Hardwick was trying to appeal to the national uh, media uh, to, to show that Georgia, hey, look, we can handle things. We have justice in Georgia. You know, we hang white people, we hang black people if they're they're found guilty, and therefore he was he was tilting towards, you know, showing the nation that justice in Georgia is swift but fair to both races. Now we'll hang him if he's saying we'll hang him if they're polka dotted. He doesn't care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And he was also uh, he had run afoul of the Klan because he be he did not have any quarrel with the Klan's principles of white supremacy. That was all fine, but he didn't. He wanted them to stop going around in hoods and uh, in sheets uh, after dark. You know, he wanted it to become a political movement and not one of intimidation and violence, which uh, cost him at the polls dearly. And he, he lost his bid for re-election in part because of uh, uh, the Dupree decision. They this was the first gubernatorial election where women could vote in Georgia, and they suggested that women who were very active in the Save Frank Dupree effort uh, held it against Tom Hardwick at the polls later that year. 
Yeah, I want to ask you about that because we have been keeping our gaze on sort of the city of Atlanta as much as we have on Frank and and his exploits, um, you know, in this case. And over and over again, you describe this kind of massive municipal response to to the Frank Dupree um, murder, and the women come up in this sort of very forceful way over the summertime of that year where they organize a, a petition. They organize a petition that garners thousands of signatures. And you have a photograph of this in your book. It's extraordinary just to see page after page after page of people saying, you know, let this poor boy go, you know, that sort of thing. Poor motherless um, boy. Poor motherless child, absolutely. Uh, the city is turning out in droves to visit Frank, to uh, pray for him in prison, to send him gifts, to try to intervene for him right up until the date of his execution on September 1st. I mean, people are lining the streets in support of this young man. How do you explain this? The, Epis the Episcopal Bishop of Atlanta came to the tower to induct Frank into the Episcopalian church. He was getting religious instruction. It was a pretty ecumenical effort on the part of the church community. No Jews, no Catholics seemed to be actively involved, but the Jewish and Catholic communities were still, you know, not quite the thing in, in the South at that time than uh, the Tom Watson era in Georgia and across the region. But the Protestant uh, denominations were uh, had many, but then there was also the Reverend Ham of the Baptist faith, who was, as uh, as Frank said, um, well, one of those preachers wants to break my neck. So it was a divided, uh, a divided religious community, but certainly they were the most active and most prominent in the effort to save Frank from the noose. So Frank is not the first inmate to find religion as he is staring at the reaper. Um, and yet, what is interesting is that his demeanor, his personality in those long months of incarceration as the door is slowly shutting and, and shutting firmly on his hopes, his demeanor actually does change. He, he kind of drops the, the I'm better than you guys at all this act, doesn't he? Yes, he becomes uh, very calm. It was remarked on many occasions that when they would visit Frank, the, the ladies would be sobbing. And, but Frank was very calm and, you know, he hadn't given up hope. He's taken religious instructions. He's going to go to heaven. And he seems to be more resigned to his, his fate than the many people who were uh, making their best effort to to save him. He tried to stop smoking uh, as heavily as, as he had been. He smoked like incredible amounts of cigarettes, according to all the accounts, but he, he sort of big, backed off on that in his final days. Probably a little less moonshine, too. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he one of the things I noted was his fascination for pie. He, he loved pie. And, you know, on the day he was convicted and sentenced to hang, he was returned to the tower 
And it said he asked for uh, a cup of coffee and a piece of pie. And on many occasions, on the day he hanged or was hung, the he had his morning breakfast, but he didn't want his lunch. And he said, I'll just have a piece of pie. That was his last meal. You know, the Romans had a saying, de gustibus non est disputandum, which of course translates to there's no arguing over taste. And I mean, what Southern boy does not love a piece of cobbler or pie? It's kind of hard to imagine. <laughs> yeah. Find me one, right? Find me one. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so he's approaching the day and on the day itself, you know, we've talked about these sort of cinematic moments that uh, punctuate his relationship with Betty Andrews. And she's had her own kind of like legal legal troubles in the background while he's been in jail and so forth. But they, she does, uh, she does end up in the tower herself on some kind of uh, other, <laughs> as a result of some other incidents. Uh, but they have this moment. I mean, they have this incredible moment as Frank is going up the elevator on the way up to the gallows. It's a remarkable scene. And, Frank is on the first floor. His cell is on the first floor, the, the death cell. And he wants to get a message to Betty Andrews. They won't let him. Betty wants to send Frank a letter. They won't let her. But they tell her that if she stands by the elevator on the third floor, as he goes up to the gallows on the sixth, he it's an open cage elevator. He will see her as he passes by. And so there is that scene that you you describe where as the elevator is going up and it goes very slowly, creaking, and Frank is in there and he passes the third floor and there's Betty wailing and he waves to her. He's shackled, but he manages to get a little wave off and says, I'll see you in heaven, Betty. I'll see you in heaven. And She's crying out, I'll be good, Frank, I'll be good. And yeah, right. then he passes up <laughs> he passes up to the fourth floor, and that's the last time Frank and Betty saw one another on this earth anyway. Yeah. I thought I thought his his last moments were actually very touching. Um it it is it's strange, isn't it, Tom? Because it's the way that that you describe what took place in the execution chamber, it is like at the very end, for the first time in the whole year-long saga, he actually did show a little remorse. It, it was like he actually did gain an understanding of what he had done, and he was sorry for it. And of course, you're prone to feel any number of things when, um, you know, when the rope has slipped around your neck. But just by way of his attitude, it seemed like it was genuine. One of the things that was mentioned was uh, when he got off the elevator, there was a small hallway that led to the gallows. And these gallows were purpose-built for executions. There was two. There were two on that day. Frank was the second. So they had to reconfigure a new rope. And as Frank walked down the hallway, there was a window overlooking the street where there were hundreds, if not more, uh, people gathered below. And and Frank looked out. His brother was with him, his brother Joe. 
And he said, turned to Joe and said, boy, that's some crowd, isn't it? So there was still that sense of that he had done something special to bring all these people into the street. There's That's some crowd, isn't it? Well, then they bring him into the, to the gallows scene and Joe was overcome. He had to leave. There was one of the um, more faithful preachers had followed him to the gallows and they prayed together. And Frank said, I'm going to heaven. And the preacher said, Frank, I believe you are, you know, I believe you are repentant. And I am sure that this day you will be with your savior. And then the, then he was, uh, you know, tied up as they did, you know, tied your hands and legs. So there would be no jerking about and uh, it all went as planned. There was no unnecessary suffering. He was hanged until dead and his body released to a mortuary and he was taken back to Abbeville, South Carolina, his hometown and buried there in a beautiful little cemetery I have visited. And you write that contrary to both some expectations at the time, as well as some fairly uh, maybe flawed retrospectives that Frank's hanging did not actually have much of an impact on capital punishment in Georgia immediately thereafter, did it? It, it didn't seem to really uh, perturb the waters, so to speak. Of No, it didn't. Uh, it received a lot of attention. And when the Georgia legislature met in 1922, there was uh, an effort, a bill to to establish what we now know is life without parole. Um, you know, it wouldn't be for every convicted killer, but when circumstances merited it, uh, life without parole. Some of the jurymen had suggested that, you know, if you, if you give somebody mercy, who's to know that 20 years later, you'll be able to apply for parole. So this would have been the one way to to let people know that, yes, this was a horrible crime and we're not ever going to let this person out of prison, life without parole. But there was no general support for it outside of uh, the small coterie of uh, clergymen and what they called uh, sob sister women and maudlin sentimentalists uh, who had uh, gathered around the debris effort. It did not go anywhere in the Georgia legislature. And Georgia was, as uh, we all know, one of the uh, holdouts and uh, still does have capital punishment in the state of Georgia to this day. And we have life without parole now, too, as well. Tom, your portrait of Atlanta in this time period is incredibly detailed from street routes to what people were wearing to a verbatim conversations that were passing between sort of the major players. What kinds of sources were you working with in order to tell this story? And where did you find them? Well, uh, I relied heavily on the newspapers. There were three newspapers in Atlanta in 1922, the Constitution, the Journal, and the Georgian. And the city directories are an excellent resource resource for, you know, whether they lived at 24 Whitehall or 26 Whitehall. So I like that kind of detail. I've always been fascinated by the geographical setting of 
crimes or other incidents that I've written about. And fortunately, you know, I live in Atlanta, so I have an access to the Atlanta History Center and the Atlanta Public Library, which has these newspaper collections. And now, as I'm as I may have mentioned last week, the digitization of newspapers has be I I I love it. They're they're not inexpensive, but I you know I subscribe to newspapers.com and and they are just amazing resources. If if you once you get used to searching and and narrowing your search, you'll find incredible stuff. And I, I, I love the detail. I've always loved details in, in books I read, you know, like lived on this street or he was wearing a, uh, a blue baseball cap. That kind of detail, I think, is essential to telling a story. Uh, where did you find a court transcript for Frank's trial, because there was some really remarkable stuff in there. You even describe a guy who's going around door-to-door hawking a copy for 15 cents that he types up himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that that was in the newspaper, but I, the state archives are south of Atlanta, and the because of the appeal to the state Supreme Court, there is a huge box of material about uh, State versus Dupree, and in that box were the petitions uh, sent to Governor Hardwick. So that photograph was taken at the state archives in Morrow, just south of Atlanta. And they were very helpful there. And and uh, that's another resource that, uh, you know, if anything gets into the court system, they, they don't throw anything out. It's, it's incredible, you know, that you would think, um, you know, this incident as tragic as it was and um, the fate of so many people involved in it that, you know, why do we keep these records around just so a guy can come in and write a book about it someday? Well, yeah. One of the things that that really charmed me in your depiction of this this time period, I mean, it is just so vivid, uh, was, yes, you have things that enter the legal record, but then you also have aspects of Atlanta society in this day and age that probably would not leave the same kind of trace. And you have this great discussion. I wish we could have spent more time on it because there's just, there's so much to kind of say and, and frankly, um, sort of giggle at a little bit, but you know, your discussion of the science of humanology, (laughs) which which is this sort of like, it is this quack amalgamation of, other quack sciences like phrenology, and you've got these sort of humanological experts that are coming in to examine Frank and determine his mental fitness. I mean, what the hell, you man? Know, they, they, <laughs> when they started to raise issues about his mental capability, the prosecutor sent this local doctor, Dr. Eskridge, who was, you know, just a, a GP, I guess, and he went and he, in the uh, full report, which is in the state archives, he discusses, you know, Frank's testicles and uh, his body. And and he at the end of it, he, he concludes that he seems to be uh, entirely mentally capable. And uh, there would be no, you know, it was just like this, uh, uh, like an interview with him. And then uh, at his, uh, the later appeals, uh, a lady, uh, Miss Mason, uh, came up and gave him an IQ test, and she asked him several questions like, if someone brought you a stolen apple, what would you do? And he said, oh, well, I'd eat it. 
because I didn't steal it. And, you know, she she said, this proves that he doesn't know right from wrong. And this and she was the one who characterized him as a high-grade moron. And she said he was uh, he also gotten in with Betty Andrews, who was also a high-grade moron, so the two of them. But none of this proved to be uh, of any use to the ultimate battle of saving Frank Dupree. Yeah, two two peas in a pod there. Well, look, if I can put in just kind of a small request for maybe one of your next research projects, if you happen to stumble on any, you know, proceedings of the Atlanta area chapter of the American Humanological Society, <laughs> right, would you please just spend a few minutes with those and bring those to the rest of us? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll look them up. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Well, the last question that I have for you is you mentioned that we are now in the centennial year of these events. The uh, murder itself took place where uh, you and I are speaking here in January 2022. Um, the murder took place 100 years ago last month. Uh, he was apprehended right around this time 100 years ago, and then he was um, he was executed on September 1st of this year, 100 years ago. Our listeners and history press readers generally, they love crime, but they also love ghosts. And you have a rather startling account of something that happened on the one-year anniversary of Frank's execution in the tower. Tell us about that, and then I have a question for you. Well, a young man was in the cell where Frank had been held for until he departed for the sixth floor, and Howard Wright was the uh, gentleman's name, and he told an Atlanta newspaper that Frank's spirit had been coming around for a few weeks now, but uh, Mr. Wright was too afraid to talk to the spirit. He would uh, just hang around the cell. I want to talk to him, but I can't muster up enough courage, told the newspaper. And he thought he would offer Frank a cigarette because he remembered how he had been uh, wanting to uh, smoke a cigarette. And he said that the man was dressed just like Frank was. And in that one suit, he seemed to wear all the time. And um, he asked about Betty. Where was Betty Andrews? And the guy said, well, Betty's not here. Betty's gone. Frank never came back, but he was sure it was the ghost of Frank Dupree who had returned to his cell at the tower where he spent his final days. You raise an interesting question, which is what are the mechanics of offering a ghost a cigarette? Do you have to smoke it for them? <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's probably a fanciful story than I... I read a lot of old newspapers with a skeptical eye. I think they were wonderfully written by these uh, these reporters who were excellent, excellent writers. And I think they did a lot of this stuff to gin up sales. You know, they'd have a, you know, a newsboy, ghost of Frank Dupree, ghost of Frank Dupree, read all about it. And, you know, whether, I'm sure the guy said there was a ghost. I saw the ghost of Frank Dupree. And if, uh, Thanks to my intensive research, I have prolonged that uh, that legend for another century. Well, the question that I have for you is the old Fulton County Jail, the tower, no longer exists. It was demolished in the early 60s, but 
Do you have any plans this coming September to maybe take a walk around the old block and see who you might see and carry a <laughs> pack of smokes with you just in case? Yeah, I'd have to buy a pack of cigarettes somewhere. They're pretty expensive now, but um, uh, I have no current plans, but uh, I'm very glad that you all reached out to me about the time of this centenary, and I think it's... It's timely because Atlanta, not alone, but Atlanta is as a city in 2022, just as it was in 1922 with a with a crime problem. You know, it's not unique to Atlanta. We've seen a lot of it around around the country during these uh, very difficult times. So it's, there's a certain similarity. There was an epidemic, uh, the flu epidemic, a pandemic now, crime, crime. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, Frank and the Peachtree Bandit story. Well, the resonances are real, and we thank you, Tom. If you find yourself over that way nine months from now and you you know get a little tremor in the air, give us a shout, will you? <laughs> I'll do that. I will. Thank you. Thanks, as always, for listening. Our guest has been Tom Hughes, author of Hanging the Peachtree Bandit, the true tale of Atlanta's infamous Frank Dupree, available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Join us next time as we'll be starting a series in honor of Black History Month, focusing on little-known stories from the 1800s of true crime in American history and their resonance that continues today. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Special thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To find out more about Crime Capsule and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com. <laughs>